last announcement that I have before we jump in is um, a lot of you, I look out and see that you are regular downtown folks. And so this is really for you. If you're new this morning, either you're just kind of listening right now. But for you regular downtown folks, um, you may have noticed that if you've been coming here for a while, that what's really cool about Spring Lake downtown is that we have a wide range of people who come here. We have people from different socioeconomic status. We have people that are living in the condos that are right by Spring Lake, and they're coming to church here. We have people who um, live in some of the houses in the Navrino neighborhood. We have people coming from Howard Tuamico and from De Pere, and we have all these mesh-together mesh people. And it's really cool because, really, when, you, when it comes to following Jesus, we're all equal at the foot of the cross, right? We all are in need of Jesus. And so I've had a lot of people lately, this, is, this has been on my heart li lately, because I've had a lot of people lately come and talk to me and say, you know, what are we going to do about this group coming to our church? Or what are we going to do about this group coming to our church? Or why is, you know, these people look a little bit different than me, and, and they, they want this big strategy coming from Spring Lake Church. Can I tell you, you are the strategy. Can I tell you that when you come to church here, you are called not to try to fix a problem, but to see the people as people. You are called to go and talk to them and get to know them. And so, thank you. Thank you for that. I just, I just want to challenge you. You know, if, you're, if you walk into church and you see a group of people and you say, what are we going to do about those people? Instead, go talk to them. They're people. And we all need Christ. And we all need to be reminded of needing Christ. And so just be a person to the other people in the church. After service today, go and find somebody to talk to who you don't know. And just share with them who you are a little bit. It doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be awkward. Just share with them who you are and, and what you're all about. Okay? So I just, I just wanted that to do that encouragement because that's been a buzz lately. And I just want us to be a church who really practices relationship and loving each other that way. All right, so we're going to continue on in our second Peter series called Reminders. That was Sermon 1, now we have Sermon 2. Um, today we're going to be looking at Second uh, Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be covering quite a large chunk. Uh, we, for whatever reason, the way we broke it down, we're covering all of chapter 2 today. So there's a lot of information here, so hopefully you don't get too overwhelmed. But to start us off this morning, I have a question. How many of you have heard of or know about this thing called FBI profilers, okay? Anyone? No? You've heard of that term before, FBI profilers? The, you might have seen this on TV, right? Um, these are people, um, on TV you might have seen it in something called Mindhunter. I guess there's this, I haven't seen it, but on Netflix there's a show called Mindhunter, and it's how FBI profilers came about, or like Criminal Minds or something like that. I don't, I don't watch that show either, but apparently it's a show. And there are people whose job it is to detect and classify major personality and behavioral traits based of people based on an analysis of a crime or the crimes the person committed. So basically it's this. It's like people look at these crimes that these people committed, and then they use the information from those crimes to build a profile about that person, and then they use that profile in order to capture the criminal or they, other criminals like them. And so it's this interesting idea of, like, our behavior tells us of, gives us a really clear picture and a profile of who somebody is. And, and if you think about it, that's not just for criminals, it's for everyone. It's fascinating. If you think about how our actions and the way we do things actually identify us, 
profiles can easily be built just on the history of our behavior. No matter how unique we think we are as followers or as just people, we end up falling into these habits and routines and characteristics, and they become sort of an imprint of who we are to the world. Well, today in our passage, we're going to see some distinct profiles emerge. We're going to look at some conduct. We're going to look at some of the things that's said about these different profiles, and we're going to use that to really build a clear picture and identity of what each of these are. And so, specifically, there are three distinct profiles that emerge as Peter deals with the problem of false teaching that creeps into the church. And in order to really understand these profiles, we're going to look at who they are and, and what they do. And hopefully by the end, we'll have this really clear picture that I'm talking about of these profiles. So if you have your Bible, you can flip it over to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible this morning, um, I would just encourage you to find a Bible near you. There's some underneath the seats, although last service I said this and everyone looked and then they couldn't find any, so I don't know. I think there are some by the seats. Uh, you could look off a partner next to you or you could always pull it up on your phone because uh, this morning we're not going to be able to show all of the scripture on the screen that we talk about, but we're going to be in this passage the entire time. So you're going to want to be able to look at chapter two. All right, let's jump in right away and we're going to talk about this first profile, which is the wolf. And so on your outline in your bulletin, if you're following along there, it's what wolves do, what wolves do. Now, wolf is the word I chose for this first profile because it's actually talking about false teachers that we find in 2 Peter chapter 2. And, and let me show you why, okay? Let me show you why. Look at verse 1. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. This sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. You know, Peter says that they will be among us, that these false teachers are going to come among us and they're going to secretly introduce things. And then if you looked at what Jesus says, he says they're, they're going to look like they're part of the sheep, they're going to look like they're part of the flock, but in reality they're wolves. And so the profile of false teachers can really accurately be described as wolves among the sheep. Now, if you were to look at this whole chapter of 2 Peter, you'll realize that the wolves in this passage, or the false teachers, are actually the whole main subject matter. They are the star of the show of this passage, but not in a good way. And so this is probably the clearest profile that emerges from chapter 2. We learn a lot about false teachers. And it's actually really important for us to know this about false teachers, because like I mentioned a few weeks ago when we launched this series, it's not that there may be false teachers among you. That's not what Peter says. He says that there are false teachers, or there will be false teachers among you. And so Peter says directly, there are going to be people in your church. There are going to be people in churches all over the place that they rise up and they are false teachers. They're secretly false teachers. So as a vulnerable sheep in God's flock, we all need to know how to spot a wolf. Like, in other words, why did Peter give this to us? Why does he want us to know about these false teachers? Because we need to know how to spot a wolf. We're vulnerable. We all need to know the profile of the wolf. 
So let's start in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It gives a really clear picture of the characteristics of the wolf. So let's, let's look there. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct, and they will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. These are the, there's, there's really six characteristics that we see from this passage. We're going to go through them rather quickly. The first one is this. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So you saw that in the beginning. The false teachers among you, they're going to secretly introduce these destructive heresies. There's going to be people in the church that come from among us who begin to slowly and secretly bring in that which is contrary to God's word. You know, there's a couple things that really pop out when you study these words in the original language. First, this idea of secretly introduce is actually the idea in the original language that it's um, basically taking teaching from outside of the church and bringing it in with that which has already been taught. And so if you imagine, you know, like we at Spring Lake Church, we do an interview process, right, for our members. So you go through the membership class, you learn all these things, and when you get to the end, we sit down with you and we say, What's your, tell us about your life and what it means to follow Jesus and all this other stuff. And usually it's a really great conversation. And can I tell you that the false teachers that I'm talking about would fly through that interview with flying colors. In fact, we would talk to them and they would seem like people, because these false teachers are influencers, which we're going to see later in the passage, they would seem like people who have a lot of potential in our church to do great things. Now, hopefully God is leading our elders and leading our leadership team to be able to catch those things. We didn't take that part in, into account. But these people could sail through because they believe all of the core doctrines that you and I believe. That's not it. They're not going to deny the things that you and, you and I are say are true from Scripture. They're instead going to add something on top of it or bring something along with it. So no false, no false teachers, um, they, well, they come in and they slip these outside teachings on top of or along with the truth. And that's what we should be looking for. The other interesting thing about the words that Peter uses here has to do with the word heresies. Now, when we hear the word heresies, we think about heretic, and we automatically think that that's an evil thing. But if you were to go back and to really study this passage, the word heresies here is really talking about different systems of thought. And so it's not necessarily wrong to have a different system of thought because we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of the, of, of the New Testament that we read about. Those were different systems of thought. But what Peter says here is that these heresies are not just different good systems of thought, that these heresies are destructive systems of thought. And that word destruction there actually has specifically to do with the idea of damnation. In other words, it has to do with teaching something in such a way that you lead people away from the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. You lead them away from the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so the whole picture that Peter is saying here is that there will be false teachers who fly under the radar and quietly begin to introduce systems of thought that are destructive, meaning they will ultimately lead people to hell. Now, when I realized that he was saying this in this passage, I immediately thought, what kind of teaching could do that? 
I mean, like, what on earth could somebody say that would lead somebody away from the true gospel if they already knew it? And if you start to really dig into it and you look at the next characteristic, you see what it is. Because the next characteristics are that they will deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. They will deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. The idea that you're supposed to pick up at the end of this phrase, the Lord who bought them, is that you and I and anyone who is a follower of Jesus is purchased by the blood of Jesus. In fact, the idea is really the slaveholder might purchase a slave. That's the idea you're supposed to get. And in a similar sense, you and I, if we know Jesus, have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus. The idea is that because we now belong to him, we're supposed to be obedient to him. Jesus is supposed to be master of our lives. The picture is this, that one time you were owned by your own sin and you were a slave to sin and death. And now, if you know Jesus, you have been purchased by his blood, and now, instead of sin and death being your master, Jesus is your master. That's the picture that you're supposed to get. And so then our call as followers of Jesus are to be willingly obedient to our new master. Well, these false teachers are apparently using a system of thought, a heresy that denies Jesus' lordship over their lives. They're saying Jesus is not really master. They deny the Lord who bought them. In other words, these false teachers are beginning to give license to sinful behavior in people's lives. They live their lives in open rebellion and disobedience to Jesus in some way or another, and they teach others to do the same. Look at what it says of them in the rest of the passage. Skip down to verse 13. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasure while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. Look, look, look down further at verse 18. For they mouth empty, boastful words by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in air. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. The biggest distinguishing mark of false teachers Peter talks about is that they openly sin, and they go against God's word, and they lead others to do the same. I just, just take a second and think about this. Think about what has become acceptable even within the church in the last 10 to 20 years. Think about how that's changed. Think of how it's dramatically changed. Everything from sexual sins to just outright greed, in the name of grace, we have relaxed almost every standard in every way. To some degree or another. Now I'm not talking about a specific church. I'm talking about the church as a whole. And the truth is that we all struggle with sin. Each one of us in the room needs to learn to repent our whole lives. Every one of us gets off track and does grievous things. In fact, the deeper that I go with Jesus, the more and more that I know Jesus, the more and more I realize the depth of my sin. The closer I get to his holiness the more I realize that I'm a sinner in every single way. I am wicked apart from Jesus. The difference is that those who belong to Jesus admit that. They repent of it. They ask the Lord to work it out of them. They confess their sins to God and to other people. They ask for help and accountability. The hope is to grow more and more to be like Jesus and less and less to be like the world. To find ways to be more obedient to him. And the false teachers that Peter is talking about are the opposite of that. 
instead of calling their sin sin, they sin openly and they deny that it's sin. And they encourage other Christ followers that there is freedom where there is no freedom. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but this is exactly what Satan does in the garden. He goes to Adam and Eve and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree of the fruit in the garden? Did he really say that? And, and so Adam and Eve are tricked because the, the serpent is questioning what God told them to do. He twists it. And, and so in our culture, did God really say, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up? Because you know what? It feels so good to yell when I'm really angry. So did God really say that? You know, the person deserved it. Did God really say I shouldn't, I shouldn't be yelling and, and being angry like that? Did God really say, do everything without grumbling or arguing? Ooh, that's convicting, isn't it? Because I know at work, people love to grumble and argue and complain, right? Almost all of us have jobs or at least areas of our life where we have complainers all around us, right? Did God really say that? Did God really say that if anyone looks at a woman with lust in his eyes, that that too is adultery? Because I really like the storyline of this show that I watch, but it happens to contain a lot of lusty, sensual scenes that cause me to lust. Did God really say that I can't look at women like that or it's like committing adultery? Did God really say that we shouldn't gossip and speak evil of each other because there's that one guy or that one girl that I love to talk about behind their back? Did God really say these things to us? It's subtle. You need to be suspect of any teacher or influencer in the church that begins to take that which God has said and minimizes it or makes it out to be not as true or as harsh as it seems. And that brings us to the third characteristic. Destruction will come quickly for them. Destruction will come quickly for them. Peter is uh, purposely reusing destruction to make a point here. So listen to this sentence. This is really interesting. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing destruction on themselves. The idea here is that God's judgment is imminent, and it'll happen soon, and the destruction that they have caused in leading others to deny Jesus' lordship will bring destruction on themselves from the Lord. So we're going to talk more about that when we get to God's part, God's profile of this, but listen to this next characteristic. Lest you think that our church is unlikely to fall into this trap, this next characteristic is that many people will mimic their actions. Many people will mimic their actions. You know, it turns out telling people that they have freedom to sin can generate quite the following. This is why you should never judge a church based on its size. You know, there's a lot of churches, big churches out there, who love Jesus, and they preach the gospel, and they tell people of sin, and they, they tell people of the need to repent and to follow Jesus. And lots of people's lives are being changed, and God is doing good things. But there's other big churches out there who have get, grant, gained quite a following by making people feel excited and inspired. And what they inspire them to do is that their lives are just okay the way they are. That they should just be accepting of every aspect of their life and that they're just trying to build them up and inspire them to live the life that they want to live. It, 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 I, I see this all the time. They don't speak of sin and the need for Jesus. Instead, 
they, they just tell you that you have the right to live your life the way you want to live it. And that's how false teachers gain a following, by telling people what they want to hear. Number five, they will damage the reputation of the lifestyle of following Jesus. You know, in the early church, uh, the way that people identified Christians by, was by using the term the way. The way, okay? So these were members of the way. Christians were members of the way. And the re reason they did that is because uh, being a Christian is not so much about a, believing this set core truths as much as it is about living the life that God has called us to live. The idea is that you and I are supposed to be an apprentice of Jesus. He is our master. We are learning to live like Jesus, not just memorizing and studying words. And, and so think about what this means. If that is how we are identified, that we are the way of following Jesus, and we do things in open shame and open guilt, and we sin over and over again, what are we telling the world about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're saying that this is what Christians are like. And so when we lie and we cheat and we steal and we do things to each other within our own church, we're telling the world that this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what false teachers do. They damage the reputation of the lifestyle of following Jesus. Number six, they will profit by getting people to buy into their story. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. They will make up stories out of greedy motives, and they'll use these stories to appeal to your emotions and manipulate you. You know, we've all heard stories like this. We, we may not realize it, but we've heard stories like this. They're in the media a lot nowadays, but it's something like this. You know, growing up, my church would have called me a sinner. In all my life, I was constantly trying to deny who I was to be a good Christian. Until I found this church who finally accepted me for who I am. Or until I left the church altogether and now I'm finally free to be who I feel like I need to be. I've never been happier. Now certainly, I will say about this, that there are some churches that use shame and guilt to try to get people to fall into moralism. In other words, just following the rules. Instead of helping people understand the truth of the gospel and the grace that comes from it. And it's awful to feel like you just have to do everything right all the time. That's not what it's about. But what if, what if the church that this person's talking about, what if the church that this person grew up in uh, was actually a church that worked really hard at loving those who were struggling with sin? Not shaming them or humiliating them, but also not compromising the truth. What if that church had really worked to accept them and to love them and didn't give up on them, but they also didn't give up on the parameters of, for what sin is. And they called that person, just like they call everyone else, to obedience to Jesus, which is what we should be doing. What if that was the church they grew up in, but you heard the other story? You would assume that that church is a church that's guilty of judging everyone coming through its doors, when in reality, they were trying to love the person who was coming to the church by helping them be obedient to Jesus. And so the point is, false teachers know how to spin the narrative to get people onto their side, to gain trust. And so the whole profile of false teachers is that they'll work from the inside to bring outside destructive systems of thought. 
They will deny Jesus' lordship over us. Their destruction is imminent. Many people will mimic them, and they will damage the reputation of those who follow Jesus, and they will use stories to exploit people. Now, can I tell you the scary part of this? This seems like it's an outside thing. It seems like it's another church thing. It seems like it doesn't happen here. Can I tell you I've met people like this? I've been in ministry for nine years, and I have experienced people like this more than once. People who are trying to get into positions of influence in order that they can push their own agenda. As a youth pastor, I had to, I had to you know, sit down with leaders and talk about where they were at. And uh, there was this one time where this couple came in, and they were living an openly sinful lifestyle. They put it on their application. And when I asked them if they could hold off on leadership and if we could work through this issue, I didn't outright reject them. I just said, let's sit down and talk about this. Instead, they got really upset with me, and they attacked me, and they attacked the ministry. In fact, they called me a troglodyte, which I didn't know what that was until I had to look it up, okay? A troglodyte is a fancy scientific term for a caveman, so then I really felt like a troglodyte because I was like, I didn't even know, right? So they called me a caveman, and the reason they called me caveman is because they believed that I was a caveman in that I had antiquated beliefs about the parameters of God's word for human sexuality. In other words, I said to them that God's word has these parameters for how we are supposed to experience intimacy with other people and that we should fall into these parameters. And because of that, I was called a caveman. Listen, these were people who were professing believers in Jesus who wanted to lead our students. And they refused to call Jesus Lord in this area of their lives. They could have been wolves among sheep. We need to be able to identify the wolves. Let's take a look at the next profile. And that's God on your outline. So what God does. Look at uh, verses 4 through 9. He's going to talk about what God's part is in this whole idea of false teaching. Uh, what does God, how does God respond to this? What does he do? And, and this is where Peter begins to affirm who God is and his place in this. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world uh, when, he when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of lawlessness, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he had saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. The profile of God, according to Peter, can be understood by looking at these four analogies that we find in the Old Testament. He talks about the angels who sin in Genesis 6. It's an interesting story. The, the second one is the people of Noah's day along with Noah. The third one is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the fourth one is Lot. And in all these cases, Peter is demonstra demonstrating two very important aspects of God in his profile. The first one is this. When we consider false teaching and the destructive teaching, we have to remember that God will hold the unrighteous for punishment. The bottom line that Peter wants the church to know is that these false teachers are not going to get away with it. 
that God is faithful, that he is just, that he will actually do what he says. The implication is that false teachers will not get away with what they're doing because God is judge. Destruction is in their future. And that's really good to know, but it's also scary when you think about it. Because the point for us, the point that we need to take away in this situation is that we need to make sure that we're not a wolf. We need to make sure that Jesus really is Lord of our lives. It can't just be playing around and pretend. It can't just be a token nod to God that he exists and then live our lives however we want. It's only through trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior that our rebellion of sin is covered. Otherwise, our future is with the wolves. And, the second, and that brings us to the second aspect of God. God protects and rescues the godly and the righteous from trials and destruction. You know, this is the hope of this passage. Because of their faith and trust in God, Noah and his family were rescued. Lot was rescued as well. And so just as sure as God's judgment is God's ability to rescue those who love him. That's an amazing truth we need to hear. The truth and the reality of our situation is that for all of us, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one does good, not even one. The truth when it comes down to it is that the, both the righteous and the wicked have sinned. Do you understand this, right? This is the view that the Bible takes, that everyone on this earth is full of sin. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. Or how bad you think you are, you are a sinner. We have all sinned. The only difference is that when it comes to God judging the living and the dead, there will be sinners who trusted and believed in Jesus as Lord and as Savior, and there will be those who rejected him as their master. Listen, Jesus can't just be some sort of fire insurance policy. He has to be king of your life. Scripture says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, we've done this thing in Christianity where we say, all you have to do is just ask Jesus into your heart, like you're the one accepting him, right? That's all you have to do. In these passages, the picture is bigger than that. Yes, ask Jesus into your, your heart. Yes, believe what he did for you on the cross. That's the starting point. But guess what? Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is your master. That's what matters in the end. That he's not just savior, that he's savior and master. Obedience to him and his word and the desire to continue to grow is an indicator that you have actually made him Lord. If you don't desire to be obedient to Jesus in any way in your life, and you just live your life always how you want it, I would contend to you that you maybe don't know what the gospel message is. Because the gospel message is that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that brings us to the last profile, and it's all about us. What should we do? What should we do? Now, this, this part of the passage we'll look at, it continues to talk about false teachers, but I want to key you in on and, and help you pay particular attention to who the wolves are targeting, because it could be us. 2 Peter 18, uh, chapter 2, 18 through 22. So it says, For they, that is the false teachers, mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those living in error. They promise freedom 
while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. I want you to notice who the false teachers target here. They entice people who are just escaping from those living in error. In other words, they're people who are, the people who are particularly vulnerable to false teaching within the church are those who are new to the faith or they're immature and they've just started moving away from a lifestyle of sin. You know, at one point in our church, we did this study called the CRM study. Does anyone remember that? The CRM study? Okay. If you've been around for a while, you might have heard of it. Several years ago, we did a study and it was a survey of who, like, how long have you known Jesus? What is your practice of following Jesus look like in some of these things? And what we found out through that study is that the majority of our congregation has been a Christian for over 10 years. That's kind of encouraging. That's awesome that people have that deep of faith, right? But what was also true of the study is that when people were asked about the basics of following God, like just praying, reading your Bible, being in fellowship with other Christians, some of those things, we scored very low in those areas. And so just because you've known Christ for a long time does not necessarily mean that you are a mature believer and that you have the basics of the faith down. There's a lot of us who are still infants and children when it comes to faith. I just read a Barna survey uh, that approximately only 7 to 10% of Christians are, are biblically literate in our society. The point is, is that just because you have known the gospel, like I said, doesn't mean that you are a mature believer. And so let me contend that many and maybe even most of us in our very church are vulnerable to the wolves' teaching because we've just begun to escape the corruption of this world. In fact, for many of us, that would define our lives right now. We could say that person is still trying to figure out what it means to make Jesus Lord and Savior in her life. And because of that, and because of the enticement to sin, and because of the pull of the culture, we are susceptible to being drawn back into this false freedom that these teachers advocate for. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Our vulnerable position as we struggle with the desires of the world is that we begin to believe the false teacher that this sin or that sin is okay, and that God won't judge us, and we'll get away with it, and the key and primary word that they use is the word grace. Oh, you can do this, you can do that, it's okay to do that, because God is a God of love and grace. The grace that Jesus has given us is that he sent his son to die for us, and he didn't do that in order that we could live our lives any way we want. He did that in order that we could call Jesus our master and be saved. That's the grace. It's not grace to continue to sin. We are vulnerable. And so what should we do? I want to leave you with this. Four things we can do in order to combat this false teaching, in order to be prepared for it. The first one is this. We need to immerse ourselves in God's word. You know, I've heard this preached ever since I was a little boy. Uh, pastors get up every week and they're like oh you just need to read your bible more you need to read your bible more you need to be in your bible can i just tell you you need to read your bible more the reason people say that is because it's true okay it's not just trying to be a, a broken record and it's not just about reading either it's about being in it it's about understanding it it's about understanding how god's thoughts are different than your thoughts that he has a different view of the world than you have and this culture has we need to know what's in god's word in order to combat the false teaching because what does Satan say through the false teacher? 
did God really say? And if we don't know what God said, how are we supposed to combat it? But it's not just studying God's word, it's putting it into action. You know, I've started to do this thing recently because I was convicted about this. I read and read and read God's word, but I'm, I'm not finding the place that I'm putting it into action. So I was challenged that every time I read God's word in the morning that I should write down just a few ways that God is calling me to change something about my behavior or my mindset. And I write it down. And the reason I write it down is because later in the week, I can look back and see how God is using that in my life to actually follow him. And, and so look for ways to live out your faith with God's word. Number three, we need to keep short accounts of God and regularly identify and repent of sin. You know, a mark of a believer who's making Jesus Lord is somebody who is going regularly to God and to trusted believers in their life and saying, this is what I'm struggling with. Because the truth is, is every single one in, of you in here, including me, has sin that we're struggling with. And like I said, the difference is whether Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives or not. And if he's Lord of your life, you confess it to him and you move on and you repent from it. Lastly, we need to do the things that help us grow and mature. Remember, the people who are vulnerable are the people who are still getting out of the lifestyle of choosing not God. And so in order to combat this, we have to begin to grow. And that means that we spend our time studying God's word, being in community with other people, sharing our faith. It's all the things that scripture calls us to do and to think about. We got to actually do those things. And so I hope that's helpful for you. I hope these three profiles convict you and challenge you to not be the wolf and to be the one who's growing and, and be the one who can identify the wolf so that they don't get sucked into that. And I want to mention one last thing as we close. A lot of you uh, mentioned to me this morning that you like the title of the sermon, right? The title of the sermon, that the devil comes to church. And, and the reason why we did that is because the big picture of false teaching in the church is that it's an attack by Satan. That he wants to get into the church and he wants to destroy. And he was the first one to twist God's words and use them to tempt Adam and Eve. And so the devil goes to church. Satan works within the church to derail us from being effective. Because one, in one of the greatest ways he does this is by false teaching. But he also does it by causing dissensions and disunity. And can I just tell you, from time to time, as a leader of Spring Lake, as one of the leaders of Spring Lake, we hear about these rumors and these mutterings of what's going on in our church and all these bad things, and, and we're like, they're not true. Or they're only partially true, and it's not really, it's not really a bad thing, it's, it's something else. And, and so I want you to know that if you have a concern, if you are wondering about something you heard about Spring Lake and what we're doing in the community or what we're doing with this program or that program and it doesn't sound right, can you please, please, please just go on Facebook and post that right away? No, I'm kidding. Don't go on Facebook and post it right away. Please come talk to us because Satan wants to get a foothold in the church. And he wants to cause dissensions and disunity, and he wants to put false teaching in, and he wants to destroy us proclaiming the gospel to the world that needs to hear it. And so if you have issues, we are open to talk with you. We, want, we even want the criticisms. We want to know how we can be better as a church because we want the gospel to effectively go out. But don't bring it to all of your friends and talk about this and that. 
come and talk to the leadership and to the people who need to hear it. Please. We don't want any footholds for the enemy. Let's pray. Lord, I started out by saying we're all equal at the foot of the cross. And the truth is, is that every single one of us in here without you is poor. We're poor in spirit. Because we can't do anything for ourselves. We can't earn a dime towards our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to make you see us as righteous except for coming to Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that each of us in here, as we stand at the foot of the cross, would look up and see that Jesus is our Savior, but he's also our Lord. That he's our new master. That we can no longer follow the sin and the slavery that comes with it. That we must follow Jesus. And we'll never be perfect, but we need to make sure that he is Lord. And that it's his righteousness we're relying on. Help us, Lord Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.